we're going to go to the Word. Everybody ready to go to the Word? Okay, all four of you. Praise God. We're, uh, <laughs> we're going to go to the Word. Now, I know you're a quiet person. That's why you didn't say anything. My dad was a very quiet person. And uh, I always say we should worship the Lord with at least the enthusiasm we would give something else. And I am telling you, my dad was a very calm guy. I'm, Publishers Clearinghouse could have showed up at the door and told him you won millions of dollars. And he would have said, wow, that's, that's nice. Uh, you know, and others of you would turn cartwheels and go crazy and do all that. So I, I feel like we ought to at least give God the best we can. We, we, had, we had somebody getting their steps in this morning while we were worshiping God. And it reminded me of something because maybe you thought, I haven't seen anybody run in church before. Uh, well, it doesn't happen all that up often, but I got a better one than that. Many years ago, this building was a multi-purpose room and had gymnasium carpet in it. Got the picture? We played basketball, volleyball here, did all kinds of things. The youth were always doing something in here. One of the young people came up to me, and I was around, hanging around the church. He said, I got a question for you. Do you mind if I rollerblade in church? And so I looked around. I remember studying, thinking, I mean, the carpet takes basketball and volleyball and everything else we throw at it. So I said, yeah, that'd, that'd be fine. At that time, I was on the worship team. I was up there playing. And when worship began that Sunday morning, she began to rollerblade around the sanctuary. <laughs> Sweetest, most beautiful act of worship. Her heart was so good. And it was so funny because it didn't, it didn't bother me. I remember I looked out and I just smiled and said, she asked. She asked. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking the way she meant it, but she asked, may I rollerblade in church? And I said, sure. And so in the worship service, she rollerbladed around. And I'm not joking about this. Her precious heart was just worshipful before the Lord. But just, just say this. You're in a unique church. Because how many churches do you know that somebody is rollerbladed in worship? Okay, this is the only one I know. So, And you may be saying, I hope that's the only one that's done it. But in other words, it was, it was some wonderful worship. Well, we're going to talk today about um, something very important. And I want to start out with telling you a little story about um, uh, a wonderful comedian, Bob Newhart. If you're my age or 10 years younger or older, you probably heard of Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart uh, was a comedian, television guy. He um, very dry sense of humor. I loved his sense of humor. He was famous for a TV show that bore his name, The Bob Newhart Show, and he had a couple hit shows on TV. Before he was uh, a television comedian, though, he did a stint as an accountant. And so he was hired by a company, and his job, his assignment as an accountant was to balance or reconcile the petty cash. That was it. And so that was his focus. So it was a pretty big company, and petty cash, I don't know how it works today in business, but it literally was cash. And so it'd be something that wasn't on the budget, but they'd say, we need to get something or fix this or do that or buy a light bulb or whatever. And so people were always coming and getting cash, going and buying the item, bringing back the change, giving him the receipt. And so at the end of the day, he would try to balance all this out. And he said, it would be 5 o'clock. Everybody else is going home. He's there to 6, 7, 8, chasing down 40 cents, a buck 20, you know, trying to balance out the petty cash. He did that for months. Then one day he said, this is crazy. I want to go home at 5 like everybody else does. So when he balanced everything out and, it was shy 40 cents. He took 40 cents out of his pocket, put it in the petty cash, balanced it out, and went home. Then if the next day it was over by a buck, he took a buck out, put it in his pocket, you know, balanced it out. So it was always, his pocket was always balancing out the petty cash. One day his boss came to him and said, hey, that's not really professional accounting procedures to, uh, you know, balance out the books like that. And he said, I what he said was really wise. Now, this has been years ago. He said, it may not be good accounting practice, but I think this whole thing is a bad business practice. 
He said, you're paying me six bucks an hour, and I'm doing overtime chasing down 40 cents. He said, I think this is a bad strategy. He said, I don't think I'm cut out to be an accountant. And so he went into acting, and it served him very well. I tell the story because I think me and you sometimes are just like that when it comes to our relationship with God. We're always trying to balance our accounts. You know, we're always trying to make sure I had a really bad day. I better, tomorrow I better, you know, do some good stuff to balance things out. To, it's actually an accounting term and a spiritual term that we be reconciled. To reconcile means you've gone through all the, if you've ever balanced something, many of you might be like Bob and just live out of your pocket, but if you reconcile things, it means everything's balanced out. It all works. And so I think we're often doing that. I got to keep my scales balanced with the Lord. It's, it's a futile process. It'll never work. And so I want to encourage us. There's a remedy for it. His name is Jesus. And even people in church sometimes, and people who know the Lord and are truly going to heaven, I'll chat with them sometimes, and they'll be talking about uh, heaven, and they'll say, I sure hope I make it. And I'll say, why do you mean you sure hope you make it? Because I'm going to let you know about a Bible verse. The Bible says, these things have I written that you might know that you have eternal life. So you can figure it out from Scripture whether you are or aren't going to heaven. Well, I hope so. I hope I've been good enough. I hope I've done enough good deeds. I hope I've lived right. And so what, what are you trying to do? You're trying to balance it out. And so I think in our minds we think there's this celestial scale in heaven. And a lot of lost people believe that. A lot of lost people, if you share with them, you think you're going to heaven, they'll say, oh, absolutely, I think I'm going to heaven. I'm a pretty good person. You'll hear that a lot. If, if you haven't heard that before, start sharing your faith. Somebody will tell you, I, I think I'm a pretty good person. But a pretty good person compared to whom? See, the problem with trying to be good enough is here's who you've got to compare yourself to, God. God who's 100% perfect, 100% righteous, 100% of the time. And he's been like that for millennia. You and I don't go a day mastering that. And so if we're trying to balance things out, but a lot of people who don't know the Lord, they think it's just being good. And so they think, they picture in their mind, when we get to heaven, there's going to be the scale there, and God's going to put all my good deeds on one side and all my bad ones on the other. And you know, have you ever seen a scale like that? They teeter, and you're kind of waited with bated breath and fear, hoping that the, oh, the good ones outweighed it. So if the good ones outweighed it, welcome, you can come on into heaven. But that's not how it works, because your good will never outweigh. It will never outweigh. And so we have to understand, well, what does the Bible say then? What's the Bible teach us? But well, we're going to talk today about the law being written on our hearts. The law being written on our hearts. We have looked at this in scripture, and this may have been totally new to you, and you may have thought, I don't know if I believe that or not. I just want you to know this. This isn't something I made up. This is just good, solid Bible, New Testament teaching as we study about our faith and our Christianity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, Paul, who was a Pharisee, was a Christian hater who became a Christian when he encountered the resurrected Jesus. That has a way of changing your life. He uh, actually said these words. He said, the, the law, or the letters written on stone that came through Moses. If you want to check this out, I taught it a couple weeks ago. It's, it's 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9. It's a ministry. Guess what the Ten Commandments are called? A ministry of death. Now you go, what? How dare you call the Ten Commandments a ministry of death? First of all, I want you to know the Ten Commandments are wonderful, beautiful, holy, perfect, and everything. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if tomorrow morning everybody globally woke up and said, we're all going to do, and they could, we're all going to do the Ten Commandments. Our world would be transformed instantaneously. That's how beautiful and powerful the Ten Commandments are. But he goes on to say that that law that came through Moses had a glory to it. 
fading as it was. If you ever read the story, Moses' face actually shone with, shined with glory when he's in the presence of the Lord. But that glory, that light, that shining was fading. It's a perfect example of the law. It was a fading covenant. And then it goes on to say, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, it brings salvation through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's more glorious. And guess what? The glory never fades. It never wears out. It has the same strength today as it always has. So we think about this. We say, well, why, why does the Ten Commandments bring death and bring condemnation if they're beautiful and pure and holy and lovely and all that? Because we can't keep them. See, what happened from the time of Adam and Eve until the law was given, people were sinning. They were doing wrong. They were violating the heart of God. They were doing all kinds of things that were morally, ethically, spiritually wrong, but there was no law to condemn them. Now, now think about this. If there were zero laws in the United States of America, I could drive my car and run over every pedestrian that I see. And guess what? You, you ever seen that bumper sticker? If you don't like the way I drive, stay off the sidewalk. You know, that, that, if I drove like that, then I could run over every pedestrian, and we would all say that's wrong. We would all say that's morally and ethically wrong. We would all say that's abhorrent, it's evil, it's awful. But guess what? I'll never be arrested for it or charged for it or condemned for it or judged for it because there is no law. Are, are you with me? Okay. Should I start over? Okay. So there's no law. So the law came and it became a ministry of condemnation and death because for the first time I could actually see how sinful I was. Now, Cain murdered somebody. Remember that? He murdered his brother Abel. The Jewish law said, but see, the Jewish law wasn't around there. The Jewish law said a murderer must be put to death. Was Cain put to death? No, he was not. There was no law. He was judged by God, but there was no law. The law came and showed me how utterly sinful I was. So now, all of a sudden, I got this realization that I'm breaking all kinds of laws and doing all kinds of wrong and and violating the will of God, and I'm sinning like crazy. And so the first thing we do is say, I'll fix that. I'll stop sinning. Well, we've all tried it. It doesn't work too well. We give it our best effort, and we just can't make it. So the law was designed to actually bring death and condemnation to us so we would be like Paul says at one point, oh, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. So we're to throw ourselves on the mercy of the court, basically, and say, I need help. I can't do this. Listen to me, folks. Jesus is your only answer. Jesus is it. You say, well, I think I'm going to try something else. You can try whatever you want. But Jesus himself is either a truth teller or a liar, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, not a way, the way, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. And so Jesus is our answer. It's kind of like those commercials. They've been out for decades. They never, they never change it. You've, you've seen it, I know you have. There's somebody who's fallen on the ground, and they say this, help, I've fallen, but, yeah, you've seen it, I've fallen, but I can't get up. So they try to give all their energy, all their effort, everything, but they can't physically get up. Well, that's what happened to us spiritually speaking. We fail, and we couldn't get up. We are fallen spiritually, and we can't fix ourselves, we can't get up, we can't rise up. We need help. Now, in the commercial, just to see if you remember what product they're advertising, do you know what they have? Do you know what product it is that helps them? It's the life alert button. So they press the life alert button, 
and dispatched as the EMTs, the ambulances, the fire, the policemen, whatever, to help them get up. Well, metaphorically speaking, Jesus is our life alert button. We've fallen and we can't get up. We need to push that button and say, Jesus, I need you. I can't do it. And as soon as we figure out we can't do it, we're on our road to some amazing things in our life with the Lord. So the law exposes our sin. So we think about this and say, then does God not want us to keep his commands or his principles or his precepts? Well, let's find out. Let's look at 1 John 5, 3. John was one of Jesus' inner circle disciples. Uh, there was Peter, James, and John. John wrote a gospel that bears his name. The New Testament begins with uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Towards the end of your New Testament, your Christian scriptures, you will find three letters written by him, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And so John writes these words in John 1, 5, 3. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his what? Commands. This is love for God, to keep his commands. Okay, well, Tracy, I kind of think you've been teaching us that we don't have to worry about keeping his commands. I just want to say this for clarity's sake. We don't have to worry about keeping his commands to earn our salvation. You can't do it. So it's not in our own steam and in our own effort. But we're going to find out how to spiritually do this. And so it says, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Now, if you ever try to keep rules and regulations and commands, you will find them to be burdensome. So what is he saying? The Jewish people took the Ten Commandments and they created their own commandments. By the way, many of them are actually found in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. And they actually settled in on 613 laws, the Jewish people. A good Jew should keep 613 laws plus the Ten Commandments. So here, God's saying, keep his commands. I want you to know this. We Gentiles were never told to keep Jewish law. I have people that tell me that, and they'll show me a few verses. I can show them all throughout the New Testament that Gentiles were not told to keep the Jewish law. But there are universal laws. You know, to not murder is a universal law. I don't care whether you're an atheist or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Christian or a Jew. God believes no one should murder. But there's not a universal law that I cannot wear a garment with two separate materials in it. Probably every one of you are violating that Jewish law today because most of the garments we have on are cotton and rayon and, you know, spandex, whatever. There's something in there than just one thing. It was a... It was a physical example for the Jewish people to understand how pure their lives should be with only one particular substance. But that's a Jewish-only law, not a universal law for all people to keep. So here it says his commands are not burdensome. You know where John gets this stuff from Jesus? He was trained, mentored. Probably the end word for us now is uh, Jesus was John's life coach. And so he instilled all this in him because this is what Jesus taught. Remember Jesus, he said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who are burdened by life, come unto me, and I will give you, does anybody remember? Rest. Learn of me, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my, his commands, his ways, his principles, his yoke is easy. That's something you would put around an oxen or, or a mule or a horse to pull something. My yoke is easy, and my burden, a burden is a load, we think a burden's like, I'm really burdened about something. That, that is a load, we feel. A burden's actually a physical load. Jesus said, my burden is light. So we should always examine our Christianity in view of what Jesus teaches and what the Christian scriptures teach. 
If I have a Christianity that's burdensome and hard and, and the load seems heavy, we're doing something wrong. So John's teaching this. The commands of God are not burdensome. So if your Christianity is burdensome to you, then we've got to figure out why that is and yield ourselves to the truth of Scripture. But what we can look at is we can say, okay, I knew we were supposed to keep God's commands. I, I, I got to do it. And then we get all amped up because we're going to make it happen, and we never succeed at that. And we pick on the Pharisees for having all these laws and rules, and all, but we, we become modern Pharisees. We say to ourselves, okay, I got to do it. I got to pray an hour a day. I got to study the word an hour a day. I got to witness and share my faith. I have to do some good deeds. I have to do all that. I got to be in church. I got to do all these things. All those things are good things. But if I'm trying to earn something or I got to make God happy, I'm going to let you in on the insight, a biblical insight. God's already happy. He has been fully appeased in the finished work of his son. And if the Bible's true, and I believe it is, that Christians are made the righteousness of God, now, now just hang with me here. Now, some of you, this may just be, what in the world? This is just what the Bible teaches. Corinthians tells us I've been made the righteousness of God. I didn't earn it. He gave it to me, his righteousness, when I became a Christian. Now, just think logically with me. If you have the righteousness of God in you because you're a Christian, can you improve upon that? Would we dare tell God, Ah, your righteousness is pretty good, but I think I can up it a couple levels if I really try hard. No, we would never say that. We are never going to usurp or, or go past or beyond the righteousness of God that he has placed in us. So, should we pray? Absolutely. But again, logically, if I'm going to appease, appease God, how much prayer is enough? Is an hour enough? Two hours? Five hours? Six hours? I mean, where do you, where do you end when you start playing that game? I want us to have a prayer life, but I can't have a prayer life that's earning something or worthy of God because he's worthy of everything. So I need Jesus. So let's look on 1 John chapter 3. We'll go back a couple chapters in 1 John. It says, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, first of all, our hearts should not condemn us. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, we're getting ready to read a powerful, powerful scripture. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. Well, how's that? What's the rest of it? Because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Now, if we stop right there, we say, man, I knew it. I got I to do these commands. I got to please God. I got to do this. And we start getting this anxiety to do it in our own strength. But that's not all this chapter. Here's the next verse. I'll read the first two, and then we'll flow right on into the third verse. So we'll, we'll find out what, does, what are the commands John says we need to do. So I'm going to back up and read, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive anything we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what pleases him, and this is his command. Don't you think this would be pretty important to find out? If this is what pleases God and empowers my prayer life, then I need to find out what this command is. And this is his command. Here's God's command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Wow. To believe in Jesus and love one another as he commanded us. This is John telling us what the commands of God are. Now, again, where did he get that from? Jesus. They asked Jesus one time in the event to trap him, what's the greatest commandment? Because they knew whatever he picked, they'd pull it to shreds. 
But not Jesus, he's too sharp. Jesus said, here's the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's another like unto it, love your neighbor like you love yourself. That's what John's saying. Love God, love your neighbor. Now, I also want to say this. And at first, it sounds discouraging, but I want you to see we've got to go past this. When I read that, those words from Jesus, that I must love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, I've never read that verse and said, yeah, I do that. Is there anybody here who really thinks that they are loving God with their every fiber of their being? Is there anybody here who thinks they love their neighbor like they love themselves? I, I try to be a good neighbor, but I can promise you right now, I don't love my neighbor like I love me. I just don't. So you say, well, wow, we took 10 commandments and 613 commandments, reduced them to two, and Tracy, you're saying you can't even do those two. That's exactly what I'm saying. I can't even do those two. So what am I going to do? I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of God. I'm going, to I'm going to say, Jesus, I need you. I can't even do the two commandments you give. I can't, I, I, I try, I want to grow in that. And I believe Christianity is all about growing in that. I believe you should love the Lord more with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength this year than you did last year. I think we should keep growing in that. But to say I've ever arrived at that, it's pretty tough. The only arrival I have is the finished work of Jesus that he's put in me. So, let's read on. Jesus actually says, this is an interesting story. You remember, and maybe this is your first time in church, you've never heard a Bible story. By the way, if that's true, thank you for being here. I welcome you here. I don't mind that. I find that exciting and invigorating. We had a, a family here one time, and I never forget what they told me, because I would say things, because I was raised in church, like, you know, John did this, and Peter did that, and somebody else did this. And afterwards, they'd been coming for about a month, and this guy told me, he said, Tracy, when you say John or Peter or whoever you say, I have no idea who you're talking about. Wow. He said, I've only been to church two times in my whole life, and those were for weddings. I've never actually been to church service. I've never been to vacation Bible school. I've never been to Sunday school. I've never heard anything about the Bible. I went, wow, that is so cool. I mean, not that he didn't hear those things, but that he said, I, I'm, I'm a blank slate. I want to learn. I also find that sometimes he doesn't have to unlearn years of bad teaching either. He can start off fresh. So here's Jesus. He has just fed 5,000 men, the King James says, not counting women and children. We don't know what the head count is. He got a few loaves, a few fish. He blesses them, passes them out. He feeds everybody. And when the evening is done and the service is over and they're full of fish and chips, he heads out and they wake up the next morning. They look for Jesus. He's gone. He's gone across the, the sea. He's not around. Well, they work. They hustle. They, they dig for information. They finally found where Jesus is and they spend all the time, energy, effort, and work to get to where he's at. And Jesus says, you know what, guys? He said, you, you did not come here because of the words I said. You came here because you got a free meal and got your belly full. You're looking for another free meal. And then we'll pick up on the verse. Here's what he says to him. Jesus says this, John 6, 27 and 29. Do not work for food the spoils, but for food. It could be read like this. Do not work for food the spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him, God the Father has placed a seal of approval. So he says, don't work for fleeting things. You know that. How many times you've thrown stuff away in the refrigerator? It just it doesn't have a long shelf life. It, it, it spoils. But Jesus is saying, you can come to me and get eternal life. Work for that. And so then they ask what to me appears to be a legitimate, honest question. They say to him, what must we do? 
there is my problem and your problem. There's nothing wrong with doing good things, but it's, a, it's why we want to do them. They want to have eternal life. Good thing. They're asking an honest question. Good thing. They're asking an honest question to the person with the right answer. Good thing. So they say, what work must we do? What must we do? What work must we do? What work must we do to have this eternal life? What must we do to do the work God requires or demands? You ready for Jesus' answer? Here it is. Thank you, Sandy. Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Oh, my goodness. I read that, and I think, we preachers and church folk make this way too complicated. We make it way too difficult. It all begins right there. I didn't say it ends there, but it begins right there. So Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet, prophets were people who spoke on behalf of God. God told them something. He, the prophets would convey it to the people. Jeremiah lived five, six hundred years before Jesus was born. So five to six decades before Jesus came on the scene, this prophet Jeremiah says these words to the Jewish people, which would then go to all the world. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. A new covenant. If you remember at the Last Supper, Jesus said, this is a cup of a new covenant. So, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their what? Minds. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write the law where? On their hearts. Now, your heart is not the physical muscle in your chest that pumps blood. The heart, your heart is your spirit, the core of who you are, the real you, your spirit person. Just like we, which is not uncommon, we say, you know, the heart of a problem, the heart of Texas, the heart of this, that. We mean the core, the central part. And so Texas doesn't have a, a flesh heart or a problem doesn't have a beating heart. And so when God says the heart, he's talking about our spirit, man. He says, I'm going to write these laws on their minds and I'm going to write them on their hearts. See, the Pharisee in us wants to fix things from the outside in. Again, I encourage you to share your faith with people. Gentleness, with gentleness and respect, the Bible says. And if you do that, you'll find some people who say, I want to know Jesus. I want to be a Christian. But, and then they'll tell you this, but I got to clean up some things in my life first. I need to stop this and start that and quit this and, and, and stop that. And so they got all these things they got to clean up, which, again, I love their heart. They know that Christianity requires change. That's why I often say this. Do you have a life-changing relationship with Jesus? Because I get troubled when I share with people, and they say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, I gave my heart to the Lord six years old in vacation Bible school. Now, I've lived like Lucifer since then. And I've had no thought for God and a love for God and a love for his word and a love for prayer and a love for the house of God and a love for anything. There's no evidence I'm a Christian, but I think I am. So I always say, have you come into a life-changing relationship with God? I didn't say that you were made perfect, but is it life-changing? Because something will change in you if you've given your life to Jesus. Now, it may not be as fast as you want it to, but you'll see change. And so as Pharisees, we want to fix everything from the outside in. But Jesus says this is always an inside job. 
It's always an inside job. The Pharisees were masterful at fixing things on the outside. That's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. You look real pretty and painted on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And so in Matthew 23, there's woe. There's seven woes Jesus gives to the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, 25 through 26, we'll look at one of them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. The goal is to work from the inside out. Some of you have certain codes of conduct that are just in you. Let's say you were the groundskeeper for a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. And so you go into the, the garage that houses all the tools, that takes care of it, and you find the guy has five hedge trimmers. Got five of them. Only needs one, two at the most if you want to back up. They got five of them. And you say to yourself, I don't have any. I would like one for my home. Your coworker or buddy says, just take one of theirs. They're worth millions and millions of dollars, and you know this, they will never even know it's gone. And even though that's all logical, you won't take it. Because you have a code of conduct in your mind and in your heart that you're not a thief. You don't steal. They can't talk you into stealing. It doesn't matter how much they convince you, how rich the person is, how they have more than enough, how you could sure use it. It, it doesn't matter. You won't do it. Why? Because that law is written on your mind and written on your heart. It's an inside job. It's, it's coming from the inside out. That's the way Christianity is supposed to work. So how do we get the law written on our hearts and our minds? It's a result of the new covenant. It comes by yielding our lives to Jesus, by just saying, I, I'm yours, God. By the way, please don't get trapped into, you got to say a specific prayer, because I'll just blow your minds, because it blew my mind, I read it. On the day of Pentecost, Peter gets out and he preaches. And 5,000 people come to the Lord. They only know that because that's how many people they baptized. Peter never said, say this particular prayer, do this particular thing. I believe they heard the message of the gospel and they said, I believe. And then they went to the waters of baptism for a public profession of their faith in Jesus Christ. There wasn't any special prayer, which again, I'm not opposed to special prayers. There wasn't an altar call. I'm not opposed to an altar call. But I'm saying all these little rules and regulations that we come up with. I share this one with you often because often, this is my favorite one. My favorite one was this guy. They were sharing Jesus with him at work and, and he started feeling convicted. He needs to know the Lord. And I just love this one because he's driving down the road and he all of a sudden he's just, I need to know Jesus. And here's his prayer. You've probably heard me say it before. Lord, whatever it is you do in people, do it in me. And I love that one. I, believe, I, I don't think Jesus said, well, I don't know, you're supposed to pray this particular. No, he said, that, that works. That's perfect. So if today at the end you go, wow, I, I need to know Jesus and I don't know him and I don't know what prayer to pray, here's a good one. Lord, whatever it is you do in people, do it in me. He'll answer that prayer. So it's coming into a relationship with Jesus, a legitimate relationship with Jesus. Not just a, I'm a churchgoer, or not just I try to be good, or not just many years ago I said a prayer, but I've never followed up on it. None of those things. It's actually saying, Lord, I give you my life. And that changes who we are. The Holy Spirit comes inside us, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is more glorious than the ministry of the law. And I don't mean to disappoint you, but I'm not saying you'll be perfect the next day. Uh, a gentleman, I just, 
hung out with him the other day and shared with him. He was a brand new Christian. He came into my office one day and he was a nervous wreck and he was just pacing. And he's just all nervous. And I thought, man, what, what's he all nervous about? And he said, I said, Robert, what's wrong? What's wrong? He said, well, I've sinned this week. And I said, really? I said, join the crowd. And he said, you have sinned? And of course, I told him, no, I haven't, but a lot of my church folk have. But so that's what I meant, joined that crowd. I said, I said, Robert, of course. I said, I'm not condoning it. I'm not supporting it. I'm not trying to encourage you in it. I'm just saying we can't shame ourselves and guilt ourselves. And, and again, are you hearing me? I'm not saying, who cares about sin? I care about sin. God cares about sin. You should care about sin. But to spend my week in guilt and shame and brokenness when I should just turn to the mercy of God and say, Lord, I'm yours. I trust in your righteousness, not my own good deeds. And so it's not an outside in, it's an inside out. And so just like he experienced, I didn't have this immediate flawless change in me, but God tells us this in Hebrews. I love this verse. You hear me beat this drum a lot. The Bible says that our high priest Jesus has made perfect forever did you catch that? Made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I truly believe that it means this. When I come to know Jesus, I'm as righteous as I'll ever get. You say, how dare you say that? I have his righteousness. How dare us not say that? How am I going to build on that? Now, what I want to do is what the Bible also says is so often misinterpreted. Interpreted. I want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I want to say that again. I did not say, I want to earn my salvation with fear and trembling. I want to work it out. I believe I have in me the salvation of Jesus, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. Now I want to spend the rest of my life working that out. I don't want to be soft on it and say, who cares? I care. I want that beauty that Jesus put in me to be worked out through me, and I want to work on that and yield to that for the rest of my life. And I hope next year I'm better than I was this year, and the next year, and the next year, and the next year, that we keep growing in this. So we need to come into that relationship. Here it is in John chapter 1, 16 and 17. Out of his fullness, this is talking about God's fullness. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. All the translations have a beautiful, one says we've received grace upon grace. We've received elements of grace from God. The people who don't even believe in God and hate God are shown the goodness and kindness of God every day. We receive a certain element of grace, but here it's grace upon grace. We've been given even more grace. Well, what's he talking about? Well, the next verse shows us. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What do you want your faith to be based on? Law or grace? I want it to be based on grace and truth because I want to be a worshiper of Jesus, not a worshiper of Moses. Moses did his job. He brought the commandments. He did what God wanted him to do. But Jesus did it too. He did what the Father wanted him to do. He fulfilled it perfectly, and grace and truth comes through Jesus. So what's grace and truth like? I want to share with you a story that just reminds me of the grace of God. All human stories fail at some point, but you'll get the idea. There was a lady named Auburn Sandstrom. 
Auburn Sandstrom, at 29 years of age, tells a story that she was curled up on a filthy floor in a fetal position, miserable in pain, emotionally, mentally, and physically, because she was a drug addict. And it was the wee hours of the morning, and her husband and their relationship was shipwrecked, went out to get more drugs that they needed. But Auburn said, I'm not going to do drugs anymore. As much pain as she was in, she looked over and saw her newborn baby boy. And she said, if I don't change my life, they're going to take this baby from me, and rightfully so. And so she determined she was going to get off of drugs. The place she was living in was full of drug addicts, filthy, squalor, nasty, and just that was just the life they lived, just moving from one high to the next to the next. But she had this baby boy. She said, I've got to change. And she reached into her pocket, and he pulled, she pulled out a paper, and she unfolded it and looked at it, put it back in her pocket. And she had looked at this paper so many times, it was dilapidated, it was worn. She pulled it out again and looked at it, and it was a note from her mom. Her mom wrote this little note and said, would you please call this Christian counselor? He may be able to help you, and put his number down there. Well, she decided right then, I'm going to do it. And so she grabbed the phone, punched in the numbers. It's 2 a.m. And on the other end, a lazy, sleepy voice answers and says, hello? And Auburn says, my mother gave, you, gave me your number and told me that if I called you, you might talk with me and help me. And he said, oh, okay. He said, let's talk. And so she began to tell her story. He said, you're so compassionate, so kind. He just said, man, I, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Boy, that, that must be painful. That had to be so hard. And so she just keeps talking. Then she gets comfortable. So she says, she's talking about her wrecked marriage. She's talking about her drug addiction. She's talking about the withdrawal she's gone through. She's talking about her brokenness, her hurt, her pain, everything. They talk until the sun comes up. And she says, when the sun came up, she had talked to this guy, so compassionate and kind, that she felt total peace, total relief, no anxiety anymore, totally calm. And she just said to him, thank you so much. I have a question for you. How, how long have you been a Christian counselor? And he said, oh, Auburn, don't hang up on me. He paused for a second. And he said, I'm not a Christian therapist or counselor. You dialed the wrong number. Wow. You dialed the wrong number. And she didn't hang up on him. She said she talked to him for a long time after that. She said when she hung up, of course, she's in a bad condition. She said, I didn't get his name. I've never spoke to him again. But she said there's a pinhole of light that broke through. She said, I experienced for the first time this random, unconditional love that just through that guy it just changed my life and gave me new hope and, and new belief and new meaning. And she said when she wrote this, I'm happy to say that that little baby boy of mine uh, is an athlete and a scholar and just graduated from Princeton University. And as she wrote that, she's actually a college professor herself. The change that happened from compassion and kindness and hope and grace and mercy that was given, there's just one thing I would change to her story. She said, I encountered a random act of unconditional love. I want to say to you today, it wasn't random. It wasn't accidental. God's 
unconditional love for you, it's purposeful, it's specific, it's profound, it's, it's on time. And every one of us here, me, you, all of us, I want to encourage you. Again, this just symbolically. We need to pick up that phone and dial Jesus. <laughs> Do you remember the old song just came across my mind? Jesus on the main line, tell him what you want. We need to dial that. And you may say, I just don't know what the number is. Let me in, let you in on a secret. Any number will work. Just dial that, and Jesus will answer. Now, it's not saying any religion will work. Jesus works. He'll be there. He'll answer that. And what will come through, breaking through in your life, just like it did in Auburn's life, is hope, compassion, kindness, grace, mercy, forgiveness, love, all those things. In the book of Romans, one of my favorite verses came one of my favorite ones the last two or three years. And I want to pass it along to you. It's such a blessing. It says, may the God of all hope, I love that opening line, may the God of all hope fill you with grace and peace as you trust in him. And may you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think all of us could use some overflowing hope. And it comes, what, by Oh, I got good news. The stock market went up. I got this right or that right. I got the promotion at work. I hope you get all those things. But I want to tell you where it comes from is the Holy Spirit. The overflowing hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want us to pray today.